Thank you, Carol, for those prayers and welcoming. And thank you, KO, and others who are lifting up the Care Bag campaign in our outreach ministry. Good morning. It's so good to be with you all today. For some of you, um, it's the first time I'm actually seeing your whole face. And um, so that's good. And if you are recognizing people or not recognizing people, um, definitely after the service, um, get to know some people, introduce yourself, because it's been three years since we've had no masks and three years since we've had no food, and we have food today. Um, so definitely linger after the service and get to know one another. So we continue in this cruciform series, this how the cross changes everything. And our life groups are going through um, week by week, reflecting on the sermon and the passages. And so it's a great time to jump into a life group where you can explore this in more detail. There's also a Thursday night book club that's going through this book, which is one of the primary texts we're using in this series. And if you didn't join us last week, it's okay. You can jump in this week. We bought some more books. So if you want a book, um, we can get those to you as well. And we had great questions around the table last week about um, some of the content of the book as well as the sermon and so I'm looking forward to more of that. At some point in this series, we want to have a Q&A session on Sunday morning um, because a lot of good questions have gotten stirred up. So if you have a question as we're going along, there will be a place to ask it. All right. This series, The Cross Matters, it stands you know, at the center of our stage, but more importantly, the center of our faith. It's become our symbol as followers of Jesus about who God is. But sometimes it's misunderstood or sometimes it's understood wrongly instead of showing the God of love. It's showing a God who needed to be appeased, the God who needed a sacrifice in order for him to be able to forgive his people. And that's what we're digging into in this series. What really does the cross say to us about what Jesus has done for us? And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I don't really have questions about the cross. I'm, I'm good with the cross. Wonderful. Um, take this in, not maybe for yourself, but maybe those in your life who have not good associations of the cross or what it means or what it says about God and that maybe they misunderstand God. They, they read parts of scripture or maybe they've had scripture taught to them in a way that portrays this God as a monster. So this is to equip you as well as you talk with people. What does the cross say? And I hope to expand our view of what the cross means to us. Let me do a quick recap of last week, we had this quote from N.T. Wright where he says, I have been taught that the death of Jesus was all about saving me from my sins so that I could go to heaven. And for a big chunk of my Christian journey, that's exactly what I thought as well. He goes on to say, actually, according to the book of Revelation, Jesus died in order to make us restored human beings, restored human beings right here right now with the vocation to play and a vital part to play in God's purposes for the world. And it's kind of reflected in this diagram that we've used many times, but we keep coming back to it because so often this stands in contrast to how many Christians believe about what happened on this cross and it's a ticket to heaven, not this bringing heaven to earth right here, right now. 
how we live matters, that overlap is called many things in Scripture. New creation, kingdom of heaven, heaven on earth. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? He doesn't say, let us escape this earth and go to heaven. He's like, no, let's bring it now. And ultimately, he will bring it in its entirety when he comes back. And we read about that at the end of Revelation. We also talked about this in the last part of this series, the last couple of weeks, we're more focused on how does what Jesus did on the cross... Right now, we're talking about what he did on the cross, but how does it shape how we live, how we do our lives, how we do our work, our families, our church life? How is it meant to shape that? Because it is meant to shape it. Why do we do care bags, right? Because it is what God has done for us that we bring out to the world this idea of how do we respond to people who have hurt us? How do we respond to the needs in the world? We look to what Jesus did on the cross as our basis for that. Last week, we talked about who killed Jesus, the powers and the principalities, political power through Pilate. Religious power through Caiaphas. That's who killed Jesus, right? These systems of injustice. But what did Christ do for us on the cross? I found this quote um, this past week that was helpful for me. It says this, I often distinguish the crucifixion, what we did to God from the cross, what in the midst of crucifixion God and Christ did for us. So who killed Jesus? It was people, right? The powers, the principalities, that happened. But how did God use that death? How did he use that death? And I think of the cross in terms of how he used it. The quote goes on, I want to emphasize again that God never causes evil, not ever. But as our redeeming genius, Christ transfigures our affliction into the means of his grace for our salvation. He recycles that sin into forgiveness. So what is the Father like? We sang about it just before our prayers. He is a good, good Father, right? It's an important question. Is God hard to please? Is he vengeful? Is he mostly disappointed with us? Did he require death in order to love us? Is he a kind of monster? Now, We've never taught that here, but that's not the case of Christianity in general. It's the message I grew up with, and I've talked with people, and I've sat with people who struggle to really think about God as a God of love. I'm afraid of him. I live my faith in fear, especially when I've messed up. I want to run. I want to hide. I feel judged. It's not that I... I had this fear, not a healthy respect, right? But when I sin, I want to get away. I don't want to spend time with him. And when I get to sit down with people who have that understanding, it's really a precious gift because I can paint for them a different picture from the Bible about really who God is and what he did on this cross. But the problem is, is a lot of those people don't come in because they've already decided about what Christianity must be about and they don't want it. But this is where you come into play because you might have people in your lives, kids, coworkers, colleagues, 
parents, brothers, sisters, who have read about God, who have heard about God, and what they've heard and read, they don't want anything to do with it. And maybe they think they have the true representation, but it's our chance to speak in to maybe expand what this God really is and to correct things that are not helpful. So I hope this will be a time for you, no matter where you're at, for yourself or for those in your life. Is God a monster or is he a God full of love? Is he vengeful or is he merciful? I can give you verses to support both. (laughs) And we could line up those verses, we could divide up into teams, and we could debate, is he a monster or is he love? We hear this in Scripture, 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In two weeks' time, we're going to look at the Old Testament and the worst verses in there in terms of describing God, but that will come. But today, I want to look at this lens, this perfect picture of God as our starting place for understanding this God of love, and that's the cross itself. That is where we find the answer to who God is. We find who Jesus is, and we find that he is always reflecting the heart of God to us. When we look at the cross, we are looking at our salvation. When we look at Jesus on the cross, we are looking at our salvation. We picture God's love, not his anger, but God's response to sin. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them on the cross, he's not asking the Father to act in a way contrary to his nature or character. He's not saying, I didn't really want to forgive them, but for you, Jesus, I will do it. He says, no, of course. You always reflect my heart into the world. This is my heart for them. Of course, I will forgive them. The cross is not about a satisfaction of a vengeful God. It's not trying to appease his anger, but the revelation of a supremely merciful God. Now, I want to unpack ways Christians have tried to make sense um, over the last 2,000 years with various atonement theories and their theories, their ideas, and they might go into Scripture to explain it, but they're trying to make sense of it. And each of these theories emerged to a need in that time period or to um, the questions that were coming up. And so over the last 2,000 years, different theories have emerged. Christus Victor was probably one of the earliest views that emerged, and it's the name given to Christ triumphing over the powers and the principalities. So the very religious and political systems that put him to death, the spiritual reality that was there that put him to death. He was victorious over them. He took that sin upon himself, died for it, and rose. And we were singing about that really in our first song today. It had hints of Christus Victor. Jesus overcame old creation. He overcame that separation of heaven and earth. He was victorious in the battle, and he destroyed death in the process. Another theory, and this one started over a 1,000 years ago, the moral example and the moral influence 
theory. Here, he says, the sacrifice, in Christ's sacrifice, we see the love of God on display. The cross is not a legal transaction, paying for a debt, but rather Jesus loving us on the cross. It shows how much he loves us and then invites us into responding to that love. He loves us so much that we want to love him and love others for what he has done. It's Jesus living out the preaching he gave on the Sermon on the Mount. Instead of an eye for an eye, I say, turn the other cheek. Instead of hating your enemies, love them and pray for them. The final one you see up here at the moment, penal substitution, um, emerged in the Reformation in response to the Catholic Church's practice of Mass where for them, the bread and the cup are the actual body and blood of Christ. And it emerged from this idea that we don't have to kill Jesus all over again. It has already happened. Some of what they believe is that God was vengeful and angry, and Jesus had to pay that price in order for him to forgive us. Justice demanded it. Of these three up here, I have the most problem with that third one um, because I think Jesus didn't have to have his heart turned to want to forgive. Justice, the way we think about justice, is not the way God thinks about justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is not the message of Jesus. And we see in in one of Jesus' most famous parables, the prodigal son where the son is coming back, and and what does the father do? He runs out to him and says, wait there, I can't forgive you yet. Let me go kill something, and then I'll come back and forgive you. No. The father takes the shame upon himself, the ridicule from the community, and embraces him. He didn't need a sacrifice in order to forgive his son. He just does it because that's his heart. Penal substitution also minimizes the the actual impact of sin. It's more of an individual sin with this view. My sin, my salvation. It neglects the systemic issues that we have of sin and the powers and the principalities, systems of injustice, systems of oppression, systems of racism. It goes beyond sin, just our individual sin, but the entirety of it. N.T. Wright, in his book here, which we're also leaning into, The Day the Revolution uh, Began, talks about this theory in one of the most famous verses of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his son. We probably, if you've been around church, you know this verse. And he says, if you put your penal substitutionary glasses on, it actually might sound like this. God so hated the world that he killed his son. And hopefully, we can look at that and go, that does not make sense. And we can read it how it was written. God so loved the world that he gave his son. God so hated does not sound like good news at all, but more of a pagan belief, more of a monster God. God so loved. One final theory I want to lift up, the scapegoat theory. This is probably the newest one of all. Um, from the last hundred years or so. And it says that God would never 
defeat evil with violence. He wouldn't practice eye for an eye. This idea of scapegoats emerged as sin is in the world. We want what others have. And so we can quickly see, you know, with Cain and Abel, how sin begins to grow. And we can see in cultures and communities around the world this idea of a scapegoat. Let's put all of the sin upon this scapegoat. This is where that term comes from. We will blame this scapegoat for all of our problems and, and kill the scapegoat, right? This is the virgin into the volcano type of uh, idea here. And what that scapegoat represents is it basically puts all of the community sin onto the individual. This idea that um, the community is now innocent and the victim is now guilty. And Jesus actually turns upside down that scapegoat theory. It is the community that is guilty and the victim is without sin. He turns that around and says, this is a once and for all sacrifice. We don't need to have a scapegoat anymore. He has taken that upon himself. It says we are saved from this idea that bad violence needs to be answered by good violence. Now, there are more than 10 theories um, to the atonement. These are four of the big ones. And if those are helpful for you in expanding your idea, great. If they're confusing, I'll just leave them behind. It's okay. <laughs> the idea is in this whole thing is we're getting at this word atonement that we see in Scripture. And I love this definition. It's how humans are rescued from their plight and restored to their intended place within the loving and creative purposes of God. The cross stands at the center of our faith because it brings us atonement. This is kind of a popular way to put the word at one mint, at one mint with God, this connection with God, this overlap with God, at one mint is what God is doing through the cross for us. Paul says it this way, Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. And this changed everything. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, when Jesus died on the cross, something happened as a result, which the world, which as the result, the world is a different place. Sin was restrained. There was a victory over death. God in flesh was killed, and God turns that into forgiveness for us, a once and for all sacrifice. And when we get caught up in the cross in our own lives, it begins to change us and begins to change the world that God has put us in. It tells us that Christ, that God would rather die than kill his enemies. I can remember getting caught up in this story even at a young age, even through descriptions of the cross that were less helpful. But through all of that, I could see the love of Jesus. I could see his incredible love for me. I knew the guilt in my own heart, and I knew I needed him. I needed his salvation. And that very simple understanding was life-changing for me. Now the cross continues to grow in its depth in me as I grow. Its meaning continues to expand and transform because of who Jesus is. 
It means living out, right, what Jesus taught and his invitation to live out what he taught. Not to get an escape ticket out of this earth, but to live transformed here and now. When we look at the cross, we're not seeing what God did to Jesus, but the ultimate revelation of what God is like. Our loving God comes to humanity, and what does humanity do? It puts him on a cross. And he absorbs that sin. He, he doesn't fight back. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when they're coming to arrest him, you know, and, and Peter's wanting to fight back, and Jesus is like, I could call down armies right now and do that. But he absorbs the sin. He bears our sins, and he recycles our sin into love and grace. On the cross, we see the lengths that God will go to to forgive. Here we have God incarnate. Jesus coming to us. How does the world respond? How do the powers and the principalities respond? They condemn him. And they kill him. At the cross, we see the wrong idea of a monster God die. God has always been like Jesus. Jesus doesn't save us from God. Jesus saves us from our wrong ideas about God. Hopefully, not many of you grew up with a monster God idea. But where does it come from? Where does this idea come from? Why does this even exist? I think it comes from two places. One, it came from the wrong reaction to sin. We see Adam and Eve after they sinned. They were so afraid of God. Not a healthy type of respect and reverence that you would see with a child with a loving father. The type of fear that we see in the Psalms and Proverbs. No, we're talking about a fear that God's children would rather run away from them than run to them. And this is not what God wants. They hide from God. And what does God do? He goes and looks for them. He seeks them out. He wants to bridge that gap right there. So I think there's this wrong response to sin that we think, I have this guilt I want to get away from God. Two, the desire to appease the gods. Ancient religious views of God. Uh, Sky Jathani in his book, With, that we did a book study on years ago, talks about different postures of relating to God and this angry God. We're under God and we're trying to appease this God because we think he must be angry. What are the things I have to do in order to make him happy with me. Now remember, the sacrificial system predates the people of Israel. God did not invent the sacrificial system. So go back in your mind, if you will, thousands of years, and you're, you don't have science. You don't know about weather patterns, right? And your life depends on the gods. You need crops at harvest. You need to bring back food when you go to hunt. And when your harvest is good, you think, we better keep the gods on our side. Let's offer this sacrifice. And we see this in, in religions all around the globe. Well, what happens when things don't go good, when 
your crops are wiped out when the weather isn't right. Well, the gods are probably angry. We must sacrifice something even more, but now we don't have crops. Now, now we don't have livestock. Um, our child will sacrifice our child. It leads to this point. It's a losing battle. Instead of releasing fear, it creates more fear and anxiety because you're never quite sure what God requires. But here's the good news. God steps into that system, and we read about this system in Leviticus. You can read about every different thing that God wants to provide an answer for. You can know what to do so you can have peace with God. You can know what to do to relieve the guilt that you feel. He steps in and gives specific instructions on how to have peace with God. And the word for sacrifice in Hebrew is korban, this idea of drawing near. Let me tell you how you can draw near to God, not run away from me. You do this, this, and this. You can know where I stand. You can know where you stand with me. This would have been revolutionary at the time. It was no longer guessing. It was no longer leading to the place of the only thing we have left. The most important thing is our very child we have to offer you up. God says, no, let's not sacrifice our children. See, and Jesus himself calls us not to the law, but to himself. The monster God always has to be appeased. Throw the virgin into the volcano, kill the son on the cross. But the father didn't need somebody to be killed in order to be happy with humanity. See, these first Christians interpreted Jesus' life and death through the lens of the sacrificial system because that was one of their primary ways to understanding God. But God didn't need the blood of sacrifices. People did. We see in Leviticus all of those lists of what you have to do, right? But as time goes on, we see in the Psalms and the prophets, their understanding of God begins to grow. They're beginning to understand more of who God is. And David says it this way, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Well, it seems like back in Leviticus you did, God. But their understanding of God is growing. Hosea says it this way, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus quotes Hosea two times. Offering a sacrifice came out of a deep need to do something about the guilt and shame that we feel, but the haunting sense that you haven't done enough to deal with it. It's easy to see how the people then would have understood Jesus' sacrifice as the ultimate and the last sacrifice required. But without this context, it can seem barbaric. It can seem monstrous for Jesus to die, that God was angry and only a child sacrifice would do. So that's what I require. The truth is, is the cross is actually a huge step forward for humanity. God does not need the blood. We see in Jesus a willingness to die rather than resort to violence. This was a step forward. This was new creation breaking into our world. Because Jesus reveals what God is like. 
Jesus gets proximate to us. He comes into our neighborhood. He comes into our world so we can see what God is like. Scripture says nobody has seen God except you can see him now in Jesus. He forgives on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. I don't think he just meant those people that were right there. I don't think he meant just those people that sent him to the cross. I think he meant everybody, every system of violence that we participate in, system of injustice. He wants forgiveness for all of it. See, we can think of God as like Zeus, right? This image that we showed last week of that pointing judgmental finger and the thunderbolt ready to strike you down when you mess up. This shaped a lot of Western views of deities, but Eastern cultures have similar gods in their history as well. He's angry and he's hard to please. He's ready to strike you down. So how do people react to this type of an idea of a monster god? One, you create a rigid and judgmental system. What rules do I need to follow? Right? And this isn't just Christianity. This can be in every religious belief around there. There's strands of it in every religion. Let me follow exactly how it's supposed to be. We see this with the Pharisees where this system eventually leads. And, and here's the re affirming part if you're in it. The system makes me okay, but it makes all of you, I'm so sorry, God is judging you. (laughs) I'm okay, you are not okay. It leads to pointing fingers at others. You join God in doing that. Or the other reaction is, is you walk away. I don't want that type of God. I don't want that type of religion. It doesn't make sense to me. What is God's posture? The one on the left or the one on the right. We can cobble together verses that will say both. But where do you get the clearest picture of who God is? On the cross. The cross gives us the clearest picture of who God is. Does it mean that sin has no consequence? No. Look at what sin did to Jesus. Brian Zahn says it this way, we are more punished by our sins than for our sins. And I can look to my own life and the lives of those I journey with, whether it's rage, addiction, pride, jealousy, the list goes on. These are self-destructive things that we do to ourselves or have done to us by other sin. Now, we're going to talk more about sin next week and the ways that it's destructive, the ways that it keeps us from reflecting the image of God and away from our original vocation. So we'll park that. But the cross is not a payment, friends. It's an outpouring of God's forgiving love. The cross is where love triumphs over the worst sin can throw at it. It's Christ's victory. On the cross, Jesus reveals the eternal disposition of God's towards the sinner. And that is one of self-sacrificing love. And we respond to that love when we receive that with humility and love, it's repentance. 
We talked about Ash Wednesday, repentance being changing our mind about something, changing our mind about how the world thinks we need meaning and purpose and how God thinks, changing our mind about instead of using other people, serving other people, instead of taking for ourselves with greed, it's generosity and giving out to others. Instead of holding on to grudges and bitterness, it's forgiving and walking with soft hearts into the world. It's transformative. It's repentance. It's like Jesus said, it requires such a big transformation. It's like being born again. This is God's posture towards us. He invites you into that healing embrace. This is how much I love you. Open arms, forgiveness. He takes it all and he recycles it into forgiveness. God is not a monster church. God is love. And maybe you're here today and you need to hear that. Maybe you haven't heard it before. Not as only God is love, but that God loves you. Maybe you need that reminder that God is love and God loves you. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. And I want that phrase to be in your head that God is love and that God loves you. And I want us to have a chance to meditate on that. And that can either be through singing along with the team. That can be to come up here and to light a candle of remembering God's love, to holding on to him, holding on to hope. It might be going over to the table and making yourself a cross to remind you of how much Jesus loves you. I had my cross in my pocket, and I think it fell out. (laughs) Carried it around with you. I make another one over there today. It might be coming up for prayer and having the prayer minister pray that over you, that God is love, and that God loves you, or whatever might be on your heart. Come forward for that today. Let us pray. God, I thank you that you are love and that you love us. You are not a monster, but you welcome us with open arms, Jesus. May anything that is not of you be washed away, God. May we repent of wrong ideas about you, God. And may we hold on to you, Jesus, and your incredible love that you display on the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.